Welcome to Volume 1, Episode 2 of Bird Ally X New Wild Review. I'm your host, Monty Merrick, and this episode is titled Good Morning Heartache. Sit down. About despair. It all seems so heartbreakingly pointless, doesn't it? We're busting our asses saving one animal at a time, and the whole fucking planet is on the brink of extinction if we don't blow ourselves up with another war first. That message came to me privately after I'd posted a new story about a recently published study finding that a million common MERS had died of starvation over 2015-2016 in the Pacific Ocean. This analysis of the MER die-off that saw dead and dying seabirds washing up on beaches from Southern California to Alaska was hardly news to those of us on the front lines. Anyone who treats Pacific seabirds along the west coast of North America knew very well how devastating this event was and that starvation was the cause. But it was unquestionable corroboration of what we had lived through and sadly but many of our fellow beings did not. The first seabird wreck I worked was in September 2000 at the Paws Wildlife Center, just north of Seattle, in Linwood, Washington. I did not know what a seabird wreck was at the time. I just knew that at the end of my first summer as a seasonal staff member, one day someone brought us about 100 western grebes in boxes at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, and we had work to do. And we worked. For 10 days straight, we worked 16-hour days caring for those beached aquatic birds. I knew from second-hand knowledge that this was similar to working an oil spill. Now, none of these groups had been contaminated. They only needed a safe place to regain their waterproofing, lost to the sandy surf in a storm, stranded on dry land after being battered by waves. Nevertheless, this was the rhythm of emergency response. And it was familiar. My stepfather had been a volunteer firefighter. I understood the phrasing, so to speak, of a song that mostly sits around watching TV waiting for the siren to sound. I felt that I had found my true calling. We worked hard, and we lost only three of those birds. A seabird wreck, I read, was a relatively ordinary and natural occurrence. They happen. A bunch of birds few people ever see suddenly wash up on the beach. Shearwaters, petrels, auklets, cormorants, murres, pelicans, fulmars, scoters, kittiwakes. Nothing to be done but make notes, really, as this is all the way the Lord above wants it. The 19th century is filled with accounts. Of course, there are always a daft few who want to try to save the tiny fraction of birds who aren't dead. And this, I also learned, is how the dispassionate collectors of specimens classify me in my calling. Daft and misguided.
Seattle newspapers covered the incident, relaying the story of the work we were doing for those 100 creeps, as well as the conditions that had caused their stranding. Biologists from the nearby university were quoted in the articles, often saying that our work was irresponsible, that the money spent on these greaves was a waste, and that it should be put toward habitat protection. It can certainly be dispiriting when a biologist comments negatively about the work we do work they don't do. Often these comments are made in the middle of some industrial nightmare, comments that suggest that rescuing the animals caught in the disaster is somehow anti-science and a waste of money. It often seems like these comments could really only serve the industry since they don't serve the injured wild animals, nor do they serve the people who want to help. Moreover, they're false. Such comments make our work harder. Cloaking bias statements in the veneer of science carelessly undermines compassion. It's reckless to suggest that caring about the life of an individual wild animal is a waste of human time and human resources. It's also factually and morally wrong. With care, consideration, and a commitment to ever-improved protocols, we can and we do save the lives of thinking, feeling, sentient beings and make second chances real and return our patients to their wild and free lives. That grieve event in Seattle was almost 20 years ago. Some things have changed, some have not. A big change is the frequency of seabird wrecks. Every year now, a different and often multiple species run into trouble here in California and around the world. In the 1990s, it was already common knowledge that the world was imperiled by carbon, but the reality of that peril had not set in. It remained an abstraction and was difficult to incorporate into daily life. We cared for seabirds and other wildlife, case by case and each case was acute, not chronic. And if the caseload was daunting, we also believed that our mission was achievable, that we could provide care for individuals while we worked to alleviate the hazards our society posed through often thoughtless practices that education could overcome. Now every sky is tinged with a grieving madness. Articulated or not, who doesn't feel the enormity of our loss? Our world has slipped into chaos where a million of one species dies in one winter. Where the rain that comes and puts out the fires that burned a continent immediately become a flood that drowns. War is constant since the turn of the century, and the casualties only mount. The sixth great extinction, human-caused, is underway, and we say, don't despair. But despair is inevitable. Despair is our constant companion. 
We wake into our day and we say, as Billie Holiday knew we would say, we say, good morning, heartache. Sit down. Fires burn and forests die. Forests of life suffer and die the world over. Undersea forests do the same. Forests of coral, forests of kelp. Burned hydrocarbons turn the sky into a furnace and the sea into an acid bath. And the forests and the seas die. Despair and hope are strange words. They loom over us with meanings that seem greater than our own lived lives. Hope has meant many things to the Germanic language speakers who have used the word over the last 800 years. The origins of the word are obscure. No one knows where it comes from. In common usage, it has mostly meant confidence and trust. For centuries, this meant a confidence and trust in God. In modern times, it's mostly meant a general desire that things turn out as we wish. Despair has a history that can be traced from today back through Latin, de, without, and sperare, to hope, from spes, hope, to its Proto-Indo-European root, spes, which means prosperity. And when we say despair, mostly we mean without hope. And as we can see, hope's meaning has mostly meant magical thinking. go on analyzing the meaning, the history of the meaning of these words, but that isn't necessary to see a few things. Words have been loaded into our brains as the bearers of our thoughts and our feelings. Our experience is locked inside of us until we articulate its contours and we are handed ready-made shapes to contain our original thought. It may be a common practice, pre-verbal, unacknowledged, undescribed, to slice off those parts of our experience that don't fit into the shape of the word. In other words, what we all call despair, what we all call hope, may have dimensions that pass without our recognition because our common understanding doesn't know how to hold them. Trust that all will be okay in the end, a very common definition of hope, may not actually serve us if it describes a fantasy and not the circumstances which actually must be navigated. A map of a fantasy is worse than no map at all. In this way, despair is a truth teller, and truth is what pulls us into the light where we can know what needs to be done. 
despair cannot be convinced or bullied. Despair can only be accepted, heard, comforted. Yet we are often unkind to those who are mired in despair, including, maybe even especially, ourselves. Fight against the despair, we counsel, but we don't really know what that means. And for many, the advice to focus on the positive seems to be advice to believe in illusions. In 2003, after working on several back-to-back -back wrecks in Southern California, I wondered aloud to my immediate supervisor what it means to treat seabirds for starvation, only to release them back into a dying sea. In 2003, in Los Angeles, the mounting ecological crisis was already visible. The threats to ocean health from agricultural runoff, pollution, and the first signs of warming were already wreaking havoc on the nearshore sea. Los Angeles has always had an apocalyptic vibe, a quality I had always attributed to Hollywood's regular use of the city as a backdrop for disaster movies. But in 2003, after living and working in the LA basin for a year, it was increasingly apparent that it might have more to do with the issues that Megalopolis confronts. Shrinking wild habitat, dwindling water supply, atmosphere unglued by air traffic and cars and trucks. In LA, the problems the whole world faces are written in broad strokes and hard to miss. I'm hardly the first to make this very easy observation. My supervisor responded to me as if I had said our work was meaningless. She glared at me. She said, that kind of attitude doesn't help. I didn't pursue it. Oh, in thoughts I pursued it. It's been 17 years now doing the same work since that brief conversation, and I have never stopped thinking about the world our patients must return to. I think each day about the enormity of my task and the vast sea of unknown outcomes into which I throw everything I have. I read of the worsening crises and watch as leaders in our land thwart the efforts to rescue our plunge into this chaos with alarm and outrage and despair. I watch as the powerful of this earth use these waning days, still manipulating events for their own avarice, their own gain. These surely must be the stupidest human beings who've ever lived. And like most, I feel powerless to stop them. Like most, I can see the writing on the wall. Now, as a supervisor, I encourage our staff and volunteers to think about the ramifications of our work and of our practices. We must know the world as it is if we are to help in any way. 
knowing the gravity of the situation is necessary. Of what value is ignorance to our work? If we learn that a species of seabird is struggling, not because of natural rhythms of food availability, or of nesting success, or cyclical patterns of storms, but instead that due to human intervention in the form of pollution, plastics, and warming temperatures, the seas are failing to support the life they once did. That won't mean that we should stop providing care for birds who are struggling with these conditions. These conditions that kill are as anthropogenic as a plate glass window, as a car, as a house cat, feral or loose. No, it means that our work is bigger still than we knew. And that rehabilitating wildlife means rehabilitating seas, rehabilitating rivers, rehabilitating forests, and rehabilitating human minds. Wildlife rehabilitators have long included education as a crucial part of our work. It doesn't take that many cat-caught songbirds dying in your hands before you start to think prevention might be worth a lot more than the cure. And so we educate daily, on the phone, at garden clubs, in front of Rotarians, to city council members, we plead for coexistence with our wild neighbors. In a way, to demand that wildlife rehabilitators take on society and beat back its destructive practices can seem like a cruelty to wildlife care providers. Must we also do this? We're already overburdened with responsibility for the care of a never-ending stream of civilization's wild victims. And this is another layer of despair. It's impossible to overstate exactly how unfair all of this is. In fact, we are living during the most terrible injustice the world has ever known. Wholesale destruction of ecosystems to feed the gluttony of so few, threatening life on Earth. Yet we must face the facts of the case head on. We must treat what presents. We live in a time of unreasonable demands and the stakes of failure are more severe than we can comprehend. This isn't a movie plot. This is the world today. We are not here to argue with nature or Mother Earth. We are her helpers. We do what she asks. And as long as we are acting, we know that she is alive. As long as she is alive, we do what she needs us to do. Despair comes with us into the fray. Does feeling despair help? Probably not. But what monster would we be if we could look at the world today? The devastation is widespread as it is, and only worsening, and not have our spirits wounded by this loss. 
Despair stands next to us, sometimes gnawing, sometimes sullen, but what fool wouldn't find our situation hopeless? Thousands of wild animals were rescued in California the winter of 2015-2016, and a million common murs died. The numbers don't balance. We can't prove with arithmetic that our work is getting the job done. But despair that paralyzes us and seems to prevent our action is not fully informed. If we understand the problem, there is something beyond despair. It's an illusion that would keep us in bed too demoralized to move. And that illusion is that we are not fully real that our lives do not add anything to the universe and that they can be removed from the equation without changing the sum. When we fail to work, we fail because of the illusion that the world isn't ours and our attention to it is irrelevant. It is not. It is the poetic insight of every human culture that our minds and our hearts are capable of embracing the whole, even though we cannot understand it. We can open our arms and our hearts to the universe and love all that there is, though we can only see a narrow slice. We can be awestruck by the impossible reality of the world and all that the world contains, and when we are so struck, we too are a part and parcel of that incredible blaze of reality, the fire in which all life lives. The first conscious thought we might have when we suddenly find ourselves in this expansive view is that there is a lot of unnecessary suffering in this life on earth that is caused by human forgetfulness, by human cruelty, by human failure to recognize the shared nature of our lives. That the earth is imperiled in our time is news. But it also is not. Our life is always imperiled. To be here now is to be cognizant of that constant peril. Yet still we are drawn to compassion. That each day might be our last has never been a call to callous neglect of the suffering of others. In fact, it has always been the opposite. The precarious nature of our existence demands that we be kind. It demands that we treat others as singular and precious. It demands that we rescue and protect those who suffer from human cruelty and disregard. It demands that we do what we can to stop cruel and stupid destruction of what sustains life and blocks fulfillment of our birthright destiny to live wild and free as our mother intended, be we rodent, human, warbler or reptile. In 1897, if you opened the Century Dictionary, 
you would read this description of despair. Despair naturally destroys courage and stops all effort, but may produce a new kind of courage and fierce activity founded upon the sense that there is nothing worse to be feared. In this despair is akin to desperation, which is an active state and always tends to produce a furious struggle against adverse circumstances, even when the situation is utterly hopeless. Each morning we wake to the lightning day, and we usually, regardless of our feelings, drink our supplements, stagger to our cars, and drive to our clinics. Or we look through our kitchen window in the pre-dawn to the aviaries in our backyard, and we each remember, yes, this is my strange life. We wake into a love that we cannot deny, the dawn chorus of birds mixed with the surf, or the rumble of the garbage truck in the alley. It doesn't matter where we live. We live on Earth. And we love it here. We hate to see our beloved suffer. And we do what we can. And sometimes, it's sheer desperation that saves the day. Or the owl. Or the goose. In 2010, I was chasing an oiled goose through a riparian forest of young alder in Michigan. The river was the Kalamazoo, and the oil had spilled from a pipeline after being mined in the tar sands of Alberta. Over a million gallons had contaminated 37 miles of river, and this goose was running faster than me through these small trees. I was losing ground with each step, and I was sure to lose the goose too. For various reasons, the Canada geese impacted by the tar sands oil that had spilled into the Kalamazoo River had been difficult to catch. Many had died because of that. I really wanted to catch this goose, but it seemed that I wouldn't. I felt pangs of despair, but I was also in motion. The branches whipped my face as I ran. In desperation, I lunged forward. Just a little more speed, please, I begged out loud, and then I fell forward, and then I flew. I caught the goose in my outstretched arms on my way to the ground, and then skidded along, face down in the twigs and the leaf litter. I got the goose into a carrier. I dusted myself off. I like to thank the god of dumb luck when I make a catch like that, but in this case, clearly the god of desperation had come to my aid. My work partner, a tough and compassionate friend from Texas, asked me if that's the method we always use in California. And I told her it was just when we were showing off. And then I started laughing or sobbing. It was hard to tell the difference. Despair doesn't feel good. Desperation can be costly. But these are the terms of our employment. 
It's not our love. It's not our compassion. It's not our hearts that cause pain. Love doesn't hurt. Injuries do. Despair is love in times of great loss. We cannot tell it hush. You've been listening to Bird LIX New Wild Review, Volume 1, Episode 2. Good morning, heartache. Sit down. About despair. This episode was written and produced by Monty Merrick. To support the work of Bird Ally X, please visit our website, www.birdallyx.net. That's www.birdallyx.net. Thank you for your support, and thank you for your love of the wild.